We are downtown. We are historic. We are family. We are scriptural. We are First Baptist Church. So we'll turn our attention to the reverse text now. Um, and we're going to read aloud together Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 27. So if you would stand with me and let's read this together. This then is the text for today. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, We will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and besides the neckbands that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in the city Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. May God bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> One of the most influential and important aspects of our government here in the United States of America is that we have a constitutionally mandated separation of powers within our government structure. There are a series of checks and balances that keep a single person or group from unduly wielding their power over Americans. You know, it's like we learned when we were in middle school, when we were studying the government, we know each uh, branch of the government was divided in its role to protect the country. And what we see in that as this plays out o over the course of the life of our government is that enacting change can be painfully slow. We often hear of folks bemoaning the glacial pace that our system takes. But that's how it works. That's how it was meant to be. It's a structure that keeps political tyrants at bay. You know, there are no telling how many scars America has been saved from because of political gridlock. And it must be that way. Our uh, American forefathers had seen and know how abusive a person can be when they assume total power. They had read and they had heard and they had known that for every benevolent ruler like Cyrus who allowed Israel to go home, there are ten despots like Caligula who would execute detractors in front of their families. Kind kings are few and far between on this earth. That's how we get that phrase that we know. Uh, there was a British politician uh, about a hundred years after the birth of the United States of America who popularized the, the sentiment Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. British politician Lord Acton had seen it. 
sensed it. You know, it's nearly impossible for a person to amass authority and not abuse it. And so we have those checks and those balances in our government. And though it isn't perfect, there are those accountability measures for our leaders who try to circumvent the system. And most readily, the, the, the most basic thing that we can do is vote them out of office. You see, here we have that wonderful privilege of choosing our leaders. But voting comes with its pitfalls, too. For one, it is rare for a majority to vote for what they need instead of what they want. And two, we start to believe that the world works this way. We start to think that we get to choose who rules over us. We get to choose what rules we follow, that we get to choose who is in charge. You know, we start to think, and we have seen this in our country, and we start to live the warning that is seen in 2 Timothy. In fact, if you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we are, we are seeing this rise up around us. There's this moment where the Apostle Paul is, is challenging and warning Timothy about what lay ahead, and in that, he was seeing what we deal with on a daily basis. You see, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, the Apostle Paul begins this way, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Do you hear what he's telling him there? That it, it, is, it is in the, the natural way of man that in our flesh we begin to chase after our appetites, and we begin to chase after our desires instead of finding the way forward that is best for us. In fact, it it goes one way. If we can choose what's best or choose what we want, we will often choose what we want. And he's saying there's a time coming and you need to watch out for this. And you know, so what ends up happening is the scale just begins to tip back and forth in this wobbly world. And, and it's like you, you see this constant wobble across the globe that turns into war. On, on one side, you have evil dictators who could care less about anything or anyone else. And then you have a populace over here that votes with their appetite and will lift up anybody who tells them what they want to hear. And, and we live with this constant imbalance across the globe that we feel deep in our bones that where do we go? Who do we turn to when the world is, is wobbling back and forth into war? You know, we want a leader that will treat us right. Even when we don't want a leader who will treat us right. We're conflicted within ourselves about what we want and what we need. And you know, when we come to this week's reverse text in Judges chapter 8, you see this imbalance playing out. The people call out to Gideon and say, Gideon, come be our king. Come lead us. You, you be the one that, that pulls us through. It's what they wanted. It's who they would choose for themselves because they had seen it. They had seen Midian had surrounded them and, and Midian had engulfed them and they were serving this foreign people and they said, we want to be set free and Gideon set them free. And so they could see the, the peace that had come, and, and they, they were saying, Gideon, come, come, take us, take us. I mean, who's a better leader than you? I mean, we've seen what you've been able to do. Surely you're the one to lead us forward. We'll put our trust in you. This is what you see in Judges 8, uh, chapter 22. 
Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So not only are you asking for Gideon, they're saying, just, just set up a dynasty. We'll take your kids and your grandkids and let them rule over us. This seems right to us because of what we've seen. And what's interesting is, frankly, the kings of Midian had already assumed that was the case, or so it seems. And that's what they, they do, and that's what they say to Gideon. If you look back up at verse 18, so before the, the children of Israel begin to say this to Gideon, when, when uh, Gideon is faced with those, those kings of Midian, uh, Ziba and Zalmunna, he, 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 they're, they're confronting one another, and they begin to, to flatter Gideon. At the end of verse 18, they were like you, talking to Gideon, each one resembling the son of a king, saying, saying Gideon is, is already looked like he's the, the king of Israel, that he's going to be the one to lead Israel through, that he's going to want to put this on his back and take them forward. It's what they wanted. It's what the enemy saw. But this is a precarious position that would dethrone our God above. See, that's what Gideon tells the people in verse 23. If you look down there with me, Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. You see, Gideon's statement here directly contradicts what the people have already said. They've come to him and said, Gideon, you're the one that's delivered us. You, you took us out of the hands of Midian. You've, you've set us free. And Gideon says, you don't know what you're talking about. Gideon says, all you can see is the physical, and there's so much more beyond our flesh. There's so much more beyond our fingertips. If only you could see beyond your fingertips and beyond the physical world, there is a God who is above us and a God who is behind us and a God who who has set all of this in motion. You see, Gideon tells them what they need to hear. He could have at this point said, I'll be your king and I'll lead you forward. And instead of that, in humility and wisdom, God says, you need to look up and you need to look beyond yourselves because there's something more at work here and I am not your king. The Lord is your king. See, he points them back to recognize God's work. And, and in a way, what, what Gideon is doing, he's saying, look back with me. Even if, you, even if you don't consider the rest of the history of the nation of Israel where you've seen God deliver, just, just look, look in the life of Gideon where, 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 where Gideon is, was there and saw an angel under an oak tree. And he's saying, God was behind this. When there was the, the fleece on the threshing floor, he was saying, God was in this. And, and when, when they were getting ready to take their troops to battle Midian, Gideon had a complete other plan when God intervened and says, I know you have 32,000 troops. You need to take 300. Because if you take 32,000 troops, people are going to think you're the one that did this. But if you take 300, they will know I am the one who did this. And so Gideon is pointing them back and, and saying, this is God's victory. This is not Gideon's victory. You see, as you work through this, Gideon knows where he stands. He knows that he's not the deliverer of Israel. He knows that it is God who is in control of all of this. And to assume authority over God is disastrous. I mean, what happens when we assume we're the one that holds the power? What, what happens to us when, when we begin to take that into ourselves and hold it with a strong fist to say, I am the one that's in charge here? Whether that's of a country, of our own lives, what happens to us when we grab a hold of it and say, I'm the one in charge and I'm going to run forward? You know, there's a couple of examples that we need to heed here. Now, now one of those we saw in the study of Daniel. So remember, about a year ago, we were studying in the book of Daniel in that, in that life, and it was a great blessing to us. And, and one of the things that we saw in Daniel chapter 4 is what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. So here, this is Daniel 4. I'm going to start in 28. 
All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. And 12 months later, so before this, he, he had had this vision. Daniel interpreted it for him. They were, they were leaning on the Lord. But then 12 months later, so verse 29, 12 months later, King Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And listen to what the king says in verse 30. The king reflected and says, Is not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? Do you hear what he's saying there? This is mine. That which has been built in front of me is mine. I built it. I took it. And I'm going to be the one to run with it. And, and as soon as he comes to that point in his life, God speaks. And God had already shown him this way. And so verse uh, 31 while the word was in the king's mouth. So as this is coming out of his mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you'll be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. And so you see what God does. God immediately intervenes in this moment and, and takes him down to say, I am the king of kings. You see, a similar thing happened in Acts. So in Acts chapter 12, after Peter's arrest and deliverance, we come to Herod. And, and this, is, this is maybe more akin to what's going on with Gideon. Look with me at Acts chapter 12. And we'll start in 21. So on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. So you hear what he's saying here? They're saying, this is, this is God in front of us and we're going to hold Herod up as our leader. Herod is the one who we answer to. Herod is the one who is in charge. He is as a God. And then 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. See, Herod finds the chance of power intoxicating and it brings death. We need to be careful here too because this isn't just a warning for kings and politicians. This is a warning for any of us who, who assume power and authority that is due God on our own. When, when we begin to steal God's power or we begin to push God off his throne, we are dealing with disaster. And when we begin to take from God that which is his, his vengeance is at your coattails. This is what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in the New Testament. When God doesn't receive the glory that he has deserved, disaster looms. You know, it's interesting, there's an odd reality in our text for this week in Judges chapter 8, because we see in here, Gideon speaks with heavenly wisdom, and he points all, all of Israel back up to heaven. He's saying, you look up to God, you worship God, and, and you serve him and not me. And what he tells the nation is exactly right. It's exactly what they needed to hear. It is their way forward. If they want to keep this peace, the way forward is to follow God always and forever. But though, God, uh, though Gideon speaks with this wisdom, his actions seem to be a bit different. You know, as you work down through this text, he seems to be assuming the role of the king, even though he tells them he's not going to be their king. He seems to do all kinds of kingly things. When you get to verse 24, he asks for a token of loot, 
exactly what a king would do at the end of a battle as a gesture of submission and for them to recognize he is the one who is in charge here. Verse 26, you see him uh, taking the kingly ornaments for the, from the kings of Midian and keeping all that together. Earlier he had taken the crescent ornaments and he's, he's taking what they have. This is what kings do. When kings win in battle, they go steal the stuff from the other kings to say, I am the victor. I am in charge here. Verse 27, he, he makes an idol out of the enemy treasure or at least something that would become an idol for the nation of Israel. And that's the kind of thing a king does. He builds things out of the enemy treasure. And what we see throughout Israel, there were times where kings would point people back to these idols. Verse 30 and 31, he takes all kinds of wives and concubines exactly as the kings of Israel do. And so what you see in these moments, though he has pointed them to God, his life that he is living out seems to be like all the other evil kings that Israel's had or they're going to have. Right? That are going to be ahead of him, that he's living out the same kind of thing that they would do, that kings do. And so as you work down through the rest of this text, Gideon and the nation of Israel are, are just as wobbly as the rest of the world because of it. They're, they're, they're walking this wobbly line that, that Israel, like kings, would often walk after them and not, not knowing which way to go and which way is up. Though he said what was right, and though he pointed people back to the reality of God's lordship, Israel began to, to press away from the Lord towards the ways of this wobbly world. You know, and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe with these things, Gideon was acting like any other victorious warrior would act. Maybe he's not assuming kingship. Maybe he's just being the victor. But he sure seems to be enjoying the spoils of a king. And to be fair to him, everyone around him is saying, you be the one, you be the king, you be the one that runs the show. You know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, democracy has a whole host of problems on this, on this side. And what we see on this side of eternity, you know, it is about as good as you can get to determine leadership. We need those checks and balances to, to hold others accountable. But, but the whole system is made up of people that are just as broken as you and I are. Right, people who are just as quick to be selfish as they are to be benevolent. The whole system is made up of people who will be unjust when it suits them. The whole system is made up of people who can be bribed into abusive behaviors. And what you see here in verse 27 is Gideon and his family even begin to fall here. You know, that's, that's why we need a separation of powers. Human leaders are going to fail you. That human leaders are imperfect and broken, and, and you're going to see them fall apart. You're going to see national leaders fall apart. You're going to see uh, ministry leaders fall apart. You're going to see pastors fall apart. You're going to see presidents fall apart. Human leaders are going to fail you, and we need somebody else. We, we need somebody else to move us forward. And that's what Gideon was saying earlier. You need somebody else. Don't, don't trust me. Don't, don't trust me because I am going to fail you. There is one who isn't going to fail you. There is one who is going to stand supreme forever and always, and he is our king. Right? We need Jesus Christ because for every failed leader on this planet, Jesus Christ is the remedy. You know, where other leaders have always found a way to take care of themselves. Jesus Christ gave himself up so that we might have life and have it abundantly. 
Jesus Christ, our King, died for us so that we might be freed from the slavery of sin and temptation that all of us find ourselves in. He gave himself up so that we might be free. You know, and for every leader that has forced unjust ways onto undeserving people, Jesus Christ is the final judge, just and holy in all accounting. Jesus is just when others aren't. You know, we need, we need to stop here for a moment because sometimes justice is one of those things we won't overlook when it plays out in our favor, but Jesus is always just. And he's always just to the point that, that he would die for the punishment of your sins that you might be freed from those so that he would bear the punishment that you rightly deserved. That's who he is as our king. You know, when, when other kings are quick to take a bribe, Jesus is incorruptible. Not even Satan himself could phase Jesus after 40 days of fasting. Jesus stood supreme. You know, you never have to worry one bit if Jesus' motives have been compromised. They haven't. And Jesus' motives cannot be compromised. He stands as the truth, the way, and the life on this earth. You know, there have been untold numbers of rulers on this earth who have abused their office and abused their own people drunk on power. But Jesus has already proven in the incarnation that meekness extends beyond any other ruler we have ever known. You see, when, when we talk about the meekness of Jesus, M-E-E-K, it, it means power under control, that, that he holds all the power and all the authority in the world, but, it, but it's not just sort of wielded at, at any whim, but it's under complete control and authority of the Christ, that though Jesus was the most powerful person in the universe, that Jesus could stir galaxies with his finger, yet he still went to the cross because that is what you needed. It's unfortunate, you know, because too often as we get to choose uh, our leaders, we end up more like Peter. You know, Peter in, in Matthew 16, and what you see there in Matthew 16, remember Jesus has told his disciples that, that he's going to have to die. And so he's laying that in front of them, and, and he's told them that, that he is their king, and he's their Messiah, and he's their, their redeemer. But in that, he's going to have to, to suffer, and he's going to have to walk to the crucifixion. And do you remember, as, as Jesus the king was explaining all of this, remember what Peter told him? I mean, Peter looks at the Christ and says, no. He says, this, this is not going to happen. This is not the way it's going to be. And, and, and Peter thinks this is a choose-your-own-adventure here. And he says, Jesus, we're going to do a different kind of thing. And, you know, and, and so it says in Matthew 16, 23, and it must be nice to have such a relationship with the king of kings that you think you could tell him no. And, and Peter makes the mistake that, that all of us do here, where you, you push your own agenda on Jesus Christ instead of submitting to him, instead of surrendering to him. Peter says, I think I have another way. Peter says, we're going to go a different direction. Peter says, no, Jesus, you're not going to do that. And, and Jesus puts a stop to that completely. And Jesus reminds Peter there in that moment, I am the king of kings. I am the Christ. I'm the one that sets this forward. I have the full authority and power uh, of heaven behind me. 
You don't get to push your own agenda onto me. But, but what I love, and I think this is a good thing, I think this should be encouraging to us, just before that, so Peter tells Jesus no in Matthew 16, 23. Just before that, in Matthew 16, 15, we see a different side. There earlier in, in Matthew 16, Jesus is asking his disciples, he says, well, who, who do other people say that I am? Right? He's setting something up. He said, who, who do people say that I am? And they give those standard answers, you know, John the Baptist, Elijah, uh, others like that. And then, then Jesus gets to the point. He says, but who do you say that I am? So that's what they say. Let's, let's forget what they say. Let's forget what the people outside the walls say. Let's, let's forget what the people in the crowd say. Who do you say that I am? And, and that's the question that's before us this morning. Who, who do you say that I am? And right there in that moment, just earlier in Matthew 16, Peter gets it right. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If only he would have held on to that just a few more verses. But, but Peter there says, you are the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and that is our prayer this morning. May we get there without flinching. May every one of us know Jesus as the Christ, the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. May, may we come to that point in our lives where we completely surrender to him, where we, we, we give up ourselves and, and we submit ourselves fully to the will of the Christ and say, I'm going to follow you wherever you lead me to go. Because that's who he's called us to be. And that's the only way forward out of this wobbly world of war. Because what we recognize is, is the world is just, just a constant back and forth and, and is never going to find a way forward without the Christ. And so may you be a part of that stable kingdom the kingdom of God that brings peace on earth, goodwill to men in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. And we recognize that as um, people in the flesh, we, we fail. Uh, Father, we fail you. Um, we, we've seen it uh, in ourselves. We've seen it in our leaders. Um, we've see it, seen it all around us. This, this world just topples back and forth. And Lord, we need you. We need your constant calming presence. And so, Lord, we, we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Come be our, our foundation, our solid rock. Lord, may your spirit move among us to to bring repentance into our hearts. And, and Lord, may your spirit move, move among us to, to challenge us and press us forward that, that we will follow you wherever you go. And Lord, we pray in those moments where we push back like Peter, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. And Lord, we pray that every step of the way we would glorify your holy name above any and everyone else. Lord, we pray that we would not steal your thunder but we would point people towards the heavens, towards the Christ, our King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.